0: Are you interested in a true crime podcast with a different point of view, with hosts who have seen the justice system from the inside? Then you should check out Alice and Brett and their show, The Prosecutors. In every episode, Alice and Brett bring a unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries. Whether it's John JonBenet Ramsey, Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, they dig deep to bring you the details that you won't hear anywhere else. The Prosecutor's Podcast is about more than just storytelling.
1: Alex and Brett will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case. They break down the complexities of the criminal justice system with a little bit of humor and personal touch. And it's not just true crime. They bring the same training and approach that they've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dieltov Pass incident and the ghost ship Marie Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, a different approach, The Prosecutors is the podcast for you. I listen to this one myself, highly recommend. Brit and Alice are great. You can find The Prosecutors wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation.
0: This started a long life of group homes, detention centers, and ultimately prison. At what point did they intervene? Why didn't they intervene? It's a situation that I would not want to find myself in. I would never want to get attacked, and I would never want to have to defend myself by, by killing somebody. And the big question we always ask John, is: justice been served here? This is True Crime Cast.
1: This is True Crime Cast. Jamie here with
0: John as always. What's up? Hey man, it's uh it's a new month. It's April. So, it is. Yeah, excited this, this year going fast for you or going slow? Fast, very fast.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little crazy. That's uh I always heard from a
0: parenting perspective, the days are long, but the years are short. That's no joke. Like time's flying. Yeah, it's, it's moving on for sure, but we've got a lot to be thankful for. I'm going to start off with, uh, thanking a patron who came in this, this week. And that is Amy who came in, took advantage of the year long membership saved 15%. So Amy, thank you so much. So Amy is going to get a brand new bonus episode every single month that is only available to Patreon members.
1: This month's episode that came out on April 1st was Elisa Lamb and the Cecil Hotel. Fascinating story. It was really good
0: stuff, and that's available exclusively to our Patreon members. Yeah, that's a lot of crazy things have happened in that hotel. It's actually been a part of a few cases that we've done on the show, and then the case of of, of her is just crazy. So you don't want to miss that.
1: Got a five-star review here. We're recording kind of uh, soon to the last time we recorded We just have one. This is can't miss type of podcast from Nakona for life. Jamie and John go to great lengths to put on a great show. This is on my list of must listen to shows each and every week, both the full length and the crime to go episodes. So many details on each case and nothing ever gets mundane or boring. If you haven't subscribed, you need to, I have a little confession to make, John crime to go. Every time I enter that title in, I enter true crime to go. But on the Apple feed, it always just says crime to go. And I have no idea systematically why that happens. I don't think it changes anything, or obviously I would have tried to fix it, but true crime to go. Okay. Well, but it says crime to go on my feed. Interesting. I had no idea that was happening. Got a fascinating one from uh, that's coming up this week, actually, about
0: cat DNA. Yeah, I I was able to write that one. And, you know, I brought a weird moose story a few weeks ago, and now I have a cat DNA story. You and your animal murders.
1: Well, yeah. You have to tune in to find out what that means. But we have a great one today as well. This was requested from a Patreon supporter. that has requested a few cases. Uh, This comes from Matthew. So thanks for recommending this case to us. And I'm going to be honest, John, when I started researching it, about four different cases
0: blended together because there are unfortunately a lot of cases like this one. Yeah, this is a, this is a sad one. So just buckle up, but I'll go ahead and get us started. So we're going to start with a lady named Susan Cox. Now she was born on October 16th, 1981 in New Mexico, but her family didn't stay there very long. And she actually moved to Washington state and that's where she grew up. Now, Susan was an athlete. She was a, she loved animals. There's actually a story that her sister tells about how each of them were given a bird as girls. There was a boy bird and there was a girl bird. And if you can kind of see where this was going before they knew it, the girls had 30 birds in their bedroom. That's, that's a, lot a lot of, lot birds. of birds. Yeah, <laughs> that is a lot of birds. And, uh, you know, I know rabbits multiply quickly. I didn't know birds did the same, but well, you know, they did. so Susan was raised in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's also known as LDS. And that's how we will refer to them henceforth. Now, she had loving parents and had a normal and happy upbringing. When she was 19 years old, she was studying cosmetology in Tacoma, and that's where she attended a dinner party with some LDS classmates at the apartment of Josh Powell. Now, Joshua Powell was born January 20th of
1: 1976 to his parents, Stephen and Terry Powell. He grew up in the same small Washington town where Susan grew up. Unlike Susan, though, his home was not a happy one. Josh's father, Stephen, had begun to break away from the LDS church, and that put a strain on his marriage. And there were other problems, too. According to the eventual divorce filings, Josh's mom said that Stephen also shared pornography with Josh and with his two brothers. So this is an adult male showing pornography to his adolescent children. She would go on to say that Stephen refused to limit certain behaviors, such as Josh was allowed without punishment, to just kill his sister's gerbil as a teenager. And we know that animal cruelty is certainly not a great sign for things to come in most of our cases. Josh would also threaten his mom with a butcher knife, and his father did nothing to stop him or to reprimand him.
0: Pretty dangerous cocktail they had going on in the home, so you can kind of see this is headed for a disaster. (laughs) Absolutely, unfortunately. When 19-year-old Susan met 24-year-old Josh, they immediately bonded over their love of birds. Now, Josh had a parrot that he absolutely loved, but they were very much an opposites attract scenario. She was quiet, humble, and sweet, and Josh was described as talkative, loud, and a know-it-all. He was one of those people that... Basically, he carries the conversation and you're just kind of a bystander. You know, you kind of
1: always know when he's there and she
0: could go by unnoticed in most scenarios. They dated for eight months and they were married in April of 2001. So to save money, Susan and Josh moved in with Josh's father, Stephen Powell in Washington. And uh, Jamie, you've already mentioned a little bit about this, but it gets worse.
1: Yeah. Again, Stephen is not the best uh, leader of his household as far as creating healthy behaviors, and unknown to Susan, he had developed an obsessive infatuation with her. He would follow her around the house with a camcorder, videoing her without her knowing. He used a mirror to secretly watch her when she was in the bathroom. He stole her underwear from the laundry, read her journals, and posted love songs online about Susan, who was his daughter-in-law, living in his house. Steven obviously has some deep rooted issues here and he's putting all this focus on Susan. These songs he wrote under a pseudonym and one of them is called secret love. It's a really creepy song. You can find it on YouTube. Listen at your own risk. In 2003, just a couple years after Susan had married his son, Steven finally told Susan how he felt that he loved her but she was devoted to Josh and she rejected Stephen. Now, according to Susan's sister, Susan told Josh about his father's advances towards his wife. And Josh's response was simply, yeah, that's just the way he is, which is not how I think I would react. If I found out anyone, especially my father was trying to put the moves in my wife.
0: Oh no, you as a husband, you've got to step in and intervene and, and, his lack of doing so shows you he's got some problems.
1: His reaction potentially upset Susan as much as the advances themselves. And she insisted that Josh and Susan move out of state away from Steven. So they found a home in the suburb of salt Lake city, Utah. When Susan was describing their reasoning for moving away, being Stephen and his behavior, she would say he's the most filthy, foul, sick, Disgusting
0: pervert the world has ever seen, and he's in love with me. Those are some strong words from Susan there. So once they settled in Utah, Josh landed several jobs in IT. Susan got a job as a stockbroker at Wells Fargo, and things seemed to be getting better. They put some distance between her and Stephen, and they decided to grow their family. They had a son, Charles, in 2005, and another son, Braden, in 2007. When Susan became pregnant with her first child, Josh changed, so she would make some journal entries, and she indicated that there was a lot of tension there with Josh. He had started refusing to go to church with his family, and he continued contact with Stephen, his dad, despite Stephen's advances on Susan. Susan's friends tell stories of Josh's extremely controlling behavior Apparently, he would give Susan a list of like sales in the area, and she was only allowed to shop at places that was on that list. He would give her as little as $10 for groceries for the whole family. Again, this is not the 1970s, this is in the 2000s. So I know my grocery budget, especially lately, has been insane. $10 might buy like some bananas and crackers right now.
1: Yeah, not as expensive as it is right now, but 2000s, $10 doesn't go very far
0: you're not feeding your family very much food and not very healthy food susan's neighbors recalled that she would call and ask for some hot dogs for her children so i mean this is more than just there's not a lot of food like the kids are hungry and she's having to call neighbors to get food such so, a sad situation yeah and and she's a stockbroker and he's an it like they probably have money so where's the money going that there's only ten dollars a week for food you know what i mean but Susan was raised in a church where divorce is not accepted and she wanted to do everything in her power to save her marriage before walking away. But uh man, like I, I know yeah, divorce is not something that you should take lightly, but I know at our church our pastor has said, Look, if there's abuse going on, like it is absolutely okay to walk away from that. And I think she would have been within her rights to do so for sure. Yeah, a lot of psychological abuse here. And you see Josh
1: doing a lot of the things that His father did. His father eventually was divorced as well. Meanwhile, while Josh was telling Susan she could only spend $10 on groceries and only shop at places that were having sales, he was spending thousands of dollars on computers, electronics. He even went out and bought a 1,000 pounds of wheat. Josh would eventually file for bankruptcy in 2007, and depending on what article you read about this it's up to
0: two hundred thousand dollars in debt you just blew by this he bought a thousand pounds of wheat without even acknowledging that that's a lot of wheat that's a lot of wheat what do you plan to do with that wheat are you like is he a doomsday prepper is that what's going on like i know that you buy a lot of rice when you expect the world to end but i've never heard of somebody just buying that much wheat (laughs) maybe he got a really good deal john you don't know about the wheat situation you know we talked about straw over on bless their hearts but Uh, wheat, 1,000 pounds, man, that's a lot of bread you're making. I don't know how you convert wheat to bread, but I know it's a product.
1: Yeah, he certainly made some weird purchases and racked up an absolute ton of debt. And when he started doing this, Susan eventually broke down and went to talk to a divorce lawyer who advised her to take a video of everything that they owned in their home so that she would have documentation for getting half of it so she did just that and eventually she went to josh and she told him that things needed to change before their next anniversary where she was leaving and when we get back from the break we'll talk about his reaction to that and how things actually got worse after her ultimatum
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S., through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. Every day
1: we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and community safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more
0: at cbpgovernor careers. On the morning of Sunday, December 6th, 2009, Susan would take her family to church. A neighbor dropped by in the afternoon and would leave the house around 5 p.m. And that would be the last person outside of the family to see Susan. The next morning, the children were never dropped off at daycare. Susan and Josh didn't show up to their jobs. When the daycare workers couldn't reach Susan or Josh, they called Josh's mother and sister. Now, Josh's mom then called the police.
1: They had no idea where anybody was. So as far as we know, the entire family is missing at this point. The police reported to the Powell house and got there about 10 a.m. The family said that Susan had been working on cleaning the heater for the upcoming cold weather and they were worried that something had gone wrong and maybe the family had been suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning or something. That gave police a reason to go ahead and enter the home without any other suspicion, so they went through a window. Nobody was inside, but they did find Susan's purse, wallet, and ID. And that's usually something that somebody does not leave behind if they're going on a planned trip, especially if they know they're going to be gone for an extended period of time. There were no signs of forced entry and there were two box fans blowing at a wet spot in the carpet. Very suspicious.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a little weird. So later that day, about 5 PM, Josh returned home with the two boys, but Susan was not there. He was immediately taken to the police station for questioning. Josh claimed he left Susan sleeping at home shortly after midnight to take the boys on a camping trip. Now this story is immediately suspicious. Who Like, when I go camping, you got to leave when there's daylight so that you can get the campsite ready and and have a fire going before dark. And he's saying he waited until after midnight on a Sunday night when the boys have school the next day? Come on now.
1: Especially when the kids are younger. Not that you can't take young kids camping, but at midnight, they're already toast. They're done. You're not going to go out and have a fun time at a campfire. This is a story that's, sure, it's plausible, but it's very unlikely.
0: Well, it gets worse. So police went to the site where Josh claimed they'd been camping and there was absolutely no evidence that there was any campsite there. And like you go camping or you have been camping. I'm sure you're from Harlan. I'm from Jellico. That's what we did. Absolutely. Like there would be remnants of fire. There would be tracks where you walked around, but there was none of that. So, and then, like I said, like who takes two little boys camping in the middle of the night on a school night? Like, it's just kind of absurd there had also been a blizzard that night and Josh never told his boss that he would be coming, not coming into work the next day. So all of this seems suspect Josh's explanation was that he forgot it was Sunday, you know,
1: <laughs> his family had
0: been to church earlier that morning. He should know it's Sunday. Yeah. Police... I mean, you should know what day it is generally as an adult though. Yeah. That's like awareness one Oh one, but police found Susan's phone in the minivan that Josh took the, The boys camping in and he didn't have an explanation for that like if he was if he was truthful about susan being asleep in the house why would her cell phone be in the minivan Uh, i don't know i guess it's possible but just this story is not adding up at all now one friend of susan said that as soon as she heard that he was back and susan was not with him she instantly said to herself what has he done that friend also said that Susan would have never allowed Josh to take the boys in the middle of the night on a camping trip in the middle of the blizzard. So she never believed this story at all. And quite frankly, like if I'm a police officer, yeah, this is not making sense. Also, why is there a fan pointed at a wet spot in the living room? Like that's weird. It is weird, especially since
1: somebody has gone missing. I think there are circumstances where that's not weird and explainable, but those situations are, are rare. In my opinion, and I think Josh is trying to set it up to you to say she just took off while we were gone. She had talked to a divorce attorney trying to say, you know what? She just left us. But when investigators really started digging into what was going on at the Powell residence, that's when they found traces of Susan's blood in the floor around that area that was wet, but there were no big signs of disturbance. There was nothing. There were broken furniture pieces and things like that. It wasn't obvious there had been a struggle. They also discovered that there were life insurance policies where if Susan were to pass away, the payout would be up to $1.5 million. And again, Josh is very much in debt. Yeah, and I mean, that would buy a lot of wheat. That does buy a lot of wheat. When they talked to Susan's co-workers, they discovered that Susan had a safe deposit box that none of her family knew about. Inside, there was a handwritten will and testament where Susan had written down, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. I don't know many things that could be more ominous as that, and especially for her to come up missing. I think this is very important piece of evidence in this case and it also is just absolutely heartbreaking that she seemed to see this coming in this will and testament she described her marital problems and says that josh doesn't want her to have anything at all of her own this was a huge piece of evidence like i said but it is very circumstantial it doesn't we don't have a body we don't know that she's dead
0: at this point yeah i mean things are definitely adding up but that piece alone is not physical evidence that leads to josh actually killing her but it is definitely a big piece of the puzzle investigators also found that josh filed paperwork to withdraw money from susan's retirement account just 10 days after she had disappeared so yeah that's a little strange for sure he also canceled susan's regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions and withdrew the children from daycare so like i don't know if you are innocent and your your wife is missing i don't think i cancel those sessions like I'm going to be hopeful that my wife comes back, you know?
1: I think you do what you need to do, if nothing else for your kids, to maintain normalcy and to, again, like you said, have that hope. Let's just keep going like we're going, hope she comes back, and we'll continue living life like we were before, and things will get
0: better. Yeah, I don't, like you said, you want normalcy for your kids, so you leave them in daycare with their friends so they can have, you know, at least a few hours in a day to have some fun, you know? Some of his co-workers came forward saying that Josh had talked to them at a party about how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in the western Utah desert. Those are some weird conversations to have at a party.
1: Yeah, I know my Google search history is kind of suspect because of this podcast, but those aren't conversations I have
0: with people. When he was questioned, you know, like we said, he was very talkative. He always wanted to talk, but during interviews, he was very quiet. He was very tight-lipped. He seemed more concerned that the police busted a window in his house than he was with his wife's disappearance. Those close to the family also say that Josh acted strangely after Susan went missing. He was seen cleaning his minivan in the garage before going to a police interview. His sister would go on to say that it was really odd to me because he was running around the house, grabbing piles of towels and putting them in the washing machine. And finally we were like, you've got to go to your interview with police Josh never participated in any search or showed any urgency to help find his wife.
1: This is all really odd. I always hesitate to blame somebody for their behavior after a huge traumatic event. Cause I don't think we ever know how we're going to react. I don't think there's a right way and a wrong way to react. Of course we would hope that he would be very talkative and trying everything in his power to find his wife and focused on that and not other things Sometimes people look for distractions. I'm always hesitant to look for reasons to blame people based on their reactions. When police did interview Josh for the first time, they also interviewed the older son, four-year-old Charlie. Charlie confirmed that they did go camping that night, but he said that he had gone with his dad, his mom, and his little brother. So Charlie's story is that Mom went camping with them. She didn't stay home on the couch. That helps explain why her phone was in the van. Absolutely. He said she was in the van with us, but she didn't ride home with us. He told investigators that his mom stayed out where they were camping at the dinosaur park, and she stayed where the crystals are. Now, what was that conversation about where to hide a body? Yeah, in an abandoned mine shaft. So it's starting to add up here, isn't it? It is. Weeks after Susan's disappearance, A teacher reported that Charlie said his mom was dead. Several months later, Susan's parents said the younger boy, Brayden, drew a picture of a van at daycare. Now, this van had three people in it, and he told the daycare workers that mommy was in the trunk. And I say I don't want to look at people's behavior too much directly after a traumatic event, but these are kids, and kids don't have as much of a filter as adults do. They say the truth. They're very truthful And it's hard for them to keep secrets. So these things are starting to come out through the kids. And it should be noted that Charlie was also making comments in his original interview saying things like they took an airplane to go camping. So it's almost like their dad was trying to get them to lie, but they just couldn't do it right. Because Charlie was four years old. How do you expect him to do that? Detective Ellis Maxwell would say that there was a pile of circumstantial evidence Was there enough to arrest Josh and book him in jail and hold him accountable? Obviously there is, but could they? know? The Salt Lake City District Attorney refused to file charges without a body until a year had gone by. And I know that it's tough to prove a murder without a body, but with this much circumstantial evidence and potential of bad things to happen later on, I think you have to take action, and they didn't here.
0: Yeah, I mean, we know the rest of the story that you guys don't know yet, but even without that in mind, uh, I, I think that if I'm the, the attorney here, I allow charges to be filed. Um, you have, I think, in my mind, you have physical evidence. You have blood in the living room. You have testimony, even if it is a four-year-old. I mean, it's it's pretty damning, and, and the testimony collaborated by his Uh, Coworkers at a party line up with what the child's saying now. So I feel like you have enough, even without a body. Police publicly declared Josh a person of interest in the case about a week after Susan went missing. They announced they planned on questioning him again and subpoenaed all footage of interviews of Josh from local media. Josh hired an attorney and he became increasingly uncooperative. Then suddenly he moved himself and his children to Washington to live with his father Soon after this move, that's when the website SusanPowell.org was launched. And the website had several anonymous entries that defended Josh as a victim of a smear campaign by Susan's family and the LDS church. There were posts that began to speculate that Susan's disappearance was connected to a journalist who vanished the same week as Susan. And the theory was that they had ran off to Brazil together. This is absurd. You know, like this is just... This is a narrative
1: that Josh pushed quite a bit as well, but there was zero connection that anybody could find between Susan and this other missing person.
0: Well, not only was it pushed by Josh, but the, it is believed that Josh and his dad, Steven wrote these posts. So they were pushing them themselves. They invented these ideas, right? (laughs) In late 2010, both men claimed that Susan had mental illness and that she ran off with another man, Susan's family rejected these claims saying that there was zero evidence to support this. Steven also began claiming that Susan was actually in love with him. He told major news outlets that Susan's journals uh, talked about her love for him and made it plausible that she would run away with another man. I mean, that's weird for your father-in-law to say
1: it is. And there's evidence to the contrary. When you start to look at those songs and look at his journals
0: What he actually had were Susan's journals from when she was a teenager. A judge eventually issued an injunction forbidding Josh and Stephen from publishing any material from Susan's journals, ordering them to either return or destroy any journals that had already been published.
1: All right. So we see Josh here taking his kids and moving away to some degree. I get that you're under public scrutiny. You're, looking to help your kids have a normal life, maybe you do move away. We know how awful of a guy his dad is, but that's his dad. That Maybe that's a comfort place for him, for the kids. Hiring an attorney, lawyering up, we can't blame him for that. So some of these things I feel like are explainable, but it's when the smear campaign against Susan really ramps up, and it's obvious that Josh and Steven were leading this charge that, everything that we've talked about where I've said it's hard to blame somebody for doing that through this lens knowing everything we know at this point in the story looks really, really bad. And his public claims, uh, Steven's public claims drew attention to the investigators as well. Obviously Josh was a person of interest, but did Steven have something to do with it as well? In 2010 authorities seized Steven's computers and discovered 4,500 images of Susan taking without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. So these were photos that he took without her knowing when he's looking through a mirror in the bathroom, when he's following her around the house, so obviously showing some of that obsession we talked about earlier. They also found evidence that he had secretly videotaped other young girls, including two neighbors, On September 22nd, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. Josh was named as a subject in the child pornography investigation as well. And this is when Susan's father, Chuck, filed for full custody of Susan's children to get the kids away from Stephen and Josh due to all their very suspicious and downright despicable behaviors. Courts granted Chuck temporary custody of the boys, ruling that Josh would have to move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to see his kids again. After a series of court-ordered evaluations, it was determined that Josh had adequate parenting skills, no criminal record, and a steady employment history. You know what kind of criminal record he could have, John? He could have been arrested for murder. (laughs) Yeah. The evaluator noted that Josh failed to admit normal personal shortcomings he was overbearing with his sons and he was defensive and paranoid i think as a parent you have to admit you're not perfect right like i feel like we're still figuring this out nobody's great at it oh yeah like every single day i remind myself that i'm an idiot it was recommended that josh could have visits with his sons but that they would be supervised and this could happen a few times a week now supervised visits John, in your line of work, essentially means that a representative of the state is there just to make sure everything goes uh, goes well and there aren't any suspicious behaviors and no dangerous circumstances
0: for the kids, right? Right, and things would get dangerous. So let's talk about that. So early 2012, there was new evidence emerged from one of Josh's laptops. His computer contained images of Cartoon pornography, including incest and bestiality. Josh was ordered to undergo a psychosocial evaluation and to take a polygraph test, but he would never make it for those evaluations. On February 5th, 2012, there was a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin, and she brought Charlie and Brayden to a supervised visit at Josh's home. Now, when she pulled up, the boys ran out of the car and got to the door ahead of Elizabeth and Josh grabbed the boys and locked the door before she could get inside. Now I'd say the boys
1: running to the door to see their dad to a place they were familiar with is pretty common behavior for
0: a visit like this, right? Yeah. But when Josh grabbed the boys and locked the door as a social worker, my heart drops right there because you know, something is about to go down. Absolutely. Elizabeth, Begged for Josh to open the door and he wouldn't. She could hear the boy screaming and she called 911. I tell you, like, I'm getting chills just reading this because I know, like, shoot, I was on a, I was out after hours last night with one of my workers with a really bad situation. And, you know, you, as a social worker, want to protect these kids. You want to do everything you can, and this is just an awful feeling. I I feel so sorry for this lady.
1: It sounds like she reacted quickly and started trying to do
0: something else to help these kids stay safe. So she called 911, and she told the operator what was happening, and she also reported that she began smelling gasoline. You can kind of see where this is going. The next thing she knew... The house exploded, and it killed Josh and the two boys.
1: This all happened so fast. She tried to get in the house and couldn't. She immediately called 911. I think the smell of gasoline is certainly suspicious, but I don't know that you ever feel like, yeah, this house is about to explode. That had to be something incredibly unexpected and traumatic for this social worker, Elizabeth Griffin. Moments earlier, Josh had emailed his friends and relatives to say goodbye. His attorney's message said, I'm sorry, goodbye. His message to the bishop contained instructions for finding his money and shutting off his utilities. A brief investigation proved that this was a deliberate murder-suicide. Josh had taken out $7,000 from his bank account the day before all this went down. He had also donated all the boys' toys, and books to local charities the official cause of death of all three was carbon monoxide poisoning but once the investigation of the scene started it was absolutely gruesome they found that the boys had chopping injuries on their heads and on their necks and they found the remnants of a hatchet near josh's body and investigators believe that josh attacked his children with it before they finally all passed out from the smoke to ensure that they would not get out of the house alive. Gasoline has been spread all throughout the house. And it was obvious that not only did he want to kill himself, but he wanted to take his boys with him. Now this is one of the more sad situations. Of course, there's a lot of murder in what we talk about. It's all sad, but anytime innocent children are hurt, especially by one of their own parents, it's really hard to process and it's really hard to talk about. But and I,
0: and I guess I just want to know like why like yeah, kill yourself. I mean, I know that sounds awful, but I like, was
1: trying to think of a better way to say it, but there's not one. If you like, want to kill yourself because of everything going on and you know you're going to go to prison for killing your wife, just
0: yeah, do Leave it. your kids but out like, of it. Why the kids, man? Like that it just it is heartbreaking and also just Pisses you off, you know? So when authorities told Stephen, who was in prison about his son and grandsons, he didn't appear upset. I mean, he the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Stephen is a psychopath too. Two weeks later, Stephen invoked his Fifth Amendment right to not answer questions about Susan's disappearance. A few months after the murder, Stephen was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. He was released from prison in 2017 and died of natural causes on July 23rd, 2018. Susan's family believes Steven knew what happened to their daughter, but whatever he knew went to the grave with him. So
1: we don't know what happened to Susan. Her body was never discovered. Josh is dead. Steven's dead. Those are the two prime suspects here. Could anybody else know what happened? There is one other suspect or at least a person who we think might know what happened, even if he was not directly involved. And that's Stephen's brother, Michael, who received the payout for Stephen's life insurance. A few days after Susan disappeared, Michael abandoned his car, which was in fine condition, in a junkyard in Oregon. He had been questioned about his sister-in-law, but was never charged with anything. He was always evasive about why he left his car where he did, because that's not something that people normally do, and nearly a year after the death of Josh and the boys, Michael jumped from the roof of a parking garage in Minneapolis. Utah authorities have since said that they believe that Josh and Michael were accomplices in the murder of Susan, that Michael knew what happened, and
0: both of these individuals ended up committing suicide. Police closed the active investigation of Susan's disappearance in May 2013. They they pretty much figured that the two people responsible had You know, they were not alive anymore, so case closed. Now, her family would go on to sue the Washington Department of Social and Health Services and the social workers themselves, and they claimed that the agency prioritized Josh's parental rights over the safety of the boys. In 2015, a federal court found that the social workers themselves had immunity and that the health and family services were not negligent. However, in 2019, an appeals court ruled the social workers did have immunity but they could sue the cabinet for negligence so a jury found that the service the human services was negligent and they awarded 98 million dollars to the estates of the two boys so susan's family used that money to start a foundation to help other domestic violence survivors
1: i would i'm interested to hear your reaction to this. I'm glad the social workers themselves were not held responsible for this because I don't think they were. I think they responded in the best way that they could to keep these boys safe. And it's a fine line to walk between balancing the rights of the parents and making sure that they get what's legally allowed to come to them as far as time with the kids but also making sure the kids needs are being met because studies show that the best thing for kids is to be with their biological parents. So I know that's a fine line to walk and it's sometimes it's, it's a little bit of guesswork. So should the cabinet
0: be held responsible here? I personally don't think so. I mean, he was never charged with murder. So you know, he was a person of interest in the murder. I think the only thing I would have done differently was perhaps not have the visit in Josh's home, have it at the office where it's kind of, you're on your turf, you're in a controlled environment. And if things get shady, you have hopefully a security guard who can help escort him out of the building. Uh, yeah, I, I see this, this poor social worker, man. I can't imagine how hard that day was, but I tell you, it's not over for her after she goes to bed that night. She's thinking, what could I have done to save those boys? And that's something that's going to be with her for the rest of her life. So, I, I mean, no, I don't think they should have been sued. And I certainly don't think that the state should have paid a hundred million, hundred million dollars, but at least that money is going towards something beneficial.
1: Yeah. I was going to say at the same time, I really don't blame Susan's family for stepping in to say somebody's responsible and needs to be held accountable for the deaths of our grandsons, and I'm glad that they are using that money to start this foundation to help prevent this from happening in the future. Now, fast forward to earlier this year, and there was an independent cave exploration searched in a mine shaft of Utah. They did discover several rib bones, some scraps of clothing, and some other human remains. However, those bones were tested and found to be from an animal, not from a human. But Susan's father is hopeful that... A sock and a blouse that they found in this mine shaft can possibly be tested and linked back to Susan. If those provide a lead, then teams could go back into the mine and use cadaver dogs to search for more material, more evidence to prove that that's where Susan and her final resting place were. Her father, Chuck has said that this location has always felt different to him and he feels like this is where she is. Now this particular mine was about 30 miles from the, campsite where Josh took his kids the night that Susan disappeared. And Chuck believes this could be uh, the, the site that the body was dumped after Josh had killed her probably at home and put her in the trunk of the van to take her out to the campsite. And he thinks that this has the potential to finally give his family some peace and some closure. Now the issue now, John, is that even if we discover this is where she is, It doesn't seem like there's anybody to be held accountable. Michael and Josh both killed themselves. Steven, if you think he was involved, passed away. I don't know that there's anybody else to hold accountable here, but at least the family will know what actually happened
0: to Susan. Yeah, I would love to see at least that piece so there can be closure. But I think the people that are responsible for for her murder are dead, so there's really... No justice that can be done. You're never going to get those two boys back or Susan back. So, man, this was a tough one. Are we done? I'm I'm thankful to call this one over. Yeah, this
1: was tough to get through. So hopefully uh, you were interested in this case and uh, enjoyed our commentary on it, but I'm done commenting. So thank you for sticking with us through it. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters, all those five-star reviews. Keep those coming in, and we'll continue
0: to read those at the
1: top of each show
0: if you have a uh, binge listen the podcast and you're finding yourself just anxious to get to another week so you can have another one check out patreon we have i think like f- three or four years worth of bonus episodes over there that you can listen to if you need some more true crime cast that's 40 lives. plus episodes over there yeah check it out guys we appreciate you all and until next crime this has been true crime cast
1: You've listened to True Crime Cast, distributed by Stoveleg Media. Check out Stoveleg.com to find out more about your hosts and to find other podcasts to listen to. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation